we are uh, right now in the second week uh, of something that we're calling One Life. And uh, let me just recap what that means. Basically, One Life is an attempt to figure out what it means to be a Christian. It's an attempt for us to spend uh, quite a few weeks of time kind of uncovering what it looks like to follow Christ. Um, and, and so that, what that means for us is that we essentially have one life, right? We don't get any more. We don't get any less. And so for us as, as people who are here on earth, uh, we have been given one life to invest in something. And uh, as we go about investing our life in something, um, whatever that is, then, then we are using that one life towards a dream. We're using that life towards accomplishing something in this world. And ultimately, what we're saying is that God's dream is where our dreams become realities. Uh, it was funny because I was uh, sitting in a coffee shop this week and uh, was actually going over this week's sermon and uh, was thinking about this whole idea of dreaming. And uh, there was uh, two people that were having a conversation that was not far from me. And they were having a conversation about being published. And it turned out, as I was kind of eavesdropping on the conversation, that, that uh, <laughs> oh, you do it too. Don't even <laughs> Smirking and giggling. So I'm eavesdropping on the conversation. And uh, it turns out that, that one of the people in the conversation was a student who wanted to become an author, and the other one was her advisor. And they're having this conversation about uh, the right methods, and she had put together a manuscript, and she was in the process of editing it, and her advisor was trying to find a publisher for it so that she could go through the process. And, and all she could talk about was her dream of becoming a writer. And, and it was really interesting because as they were having this conversation, there's a lot of other people that are streaming through and sort of sitting in the same general area. And it turned out that the, there was a person who was sitting behind this couple, kind of on the other side, and, um, and, and he was eavesdropping too. Um, and, and the reason I know this is because he interrupted their conversation. And uh, he, he said, I, I know that you're, you know, you're obviously uh, doing something very important. I don't want to take up much of your time, but I have a dream of becoming a writer too. And so he started to ask some of the questions that he had about becoming a published author uh, to this couple. Uh, and I thought it was a cool illustration that, that oftentimes dreams spread, right? Uh, so when one person catches fire for a dream and starts to talk about it in the context of other people, that dream often spills out onto other people. And people that have similar dreams or, or maybe dreams that connect in similar ways they want to find ways to, to sort of connect their dream with, with the, the dream of the other people. And I think that's a lot of what we're doing. That, that's a lot of this process that we're talking about, is, is discovering sort of the dream of our life and then connecting that dream with God's dream for the world. And as we do those things, as, as those realities become closer and closer tied together, um, we, we, be, we begin to live lives of purpose. We, we begin to live lives that matter. That's basically uh, the concept. Um, so if we were to give the, the idea of what a Christian is, going back to our definition from last time, um, it's more than, than following a set of guidelines. It's more than praying or reading our Bibles, although that's good. Uh, it's more than just a one-time decision, right? Uh, we define it as someone who follows Jesus by devoting his or her one life to God's kingdom dream for the world. 
So in a nutshell, that's what it means to be a Christian. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more as we go along. Uh, I also realized that uh, this is uh, the day before Valentine's Day, and so I wanted to kind of recognize that. And uh, one of the things that we're talking about as we get into this series is love. This, the, love is the central concept of what it means to, to be a part of God's kingdom reality. Um, so let me ask this to the guys in the room, since it is the day before Valentine's Day. How many of you have bought a gift for your significant other already? Raise your hands. You liars. <laughs> Kenny's going to come up here with the receipt and show me better. <laughs> That's great. Well, for, for those of you who may you know, still be figuring this out, right, um, we have a video to show you that will give you a little bit of advice on how to do some, uh, some holiday shopping for Valentine's Day. Check it out. <laughs> All right, I got it. She's going to love it. Let's go. Whoa, how'd you find the card so fast? I'm a speaker of lady language. It's on I the hear back the voices wall. in my head. Much like Beethoven heard music. No, I think it was just voices. Either way, I've got a card and you don't. I'm trying to find one with the right words. I just I can't find one that really describes how I feel. Here, this one. This one. This is the one. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, sugar is sweet and so is honey. I bought you this card because I had no money. That is so you. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's not me. What are you trying to say? I need a card that says, I don't deserve you. I never have, and I never will. From the moment that I first saw you, I knew that I wanted to be with you, to know you, to understand you. I am humbled that you chose me. I have married out of my league and there's not a day that goes by that I don't recognize that fact and I've never, I've never taken our vows lightly. What do I say to the mother of my children, my best friend, my soulmate? I love you can just sound so cliche and trite but it's the only words that I know. I love you. I mean that would be a card, you know? That would be a card that I'd want to buy. <laughs> What's the matter? What happened? Don't look at me! <laughs> look away! I, I, I have well, What's the matter? <laughs> it's like I'm a swimming pool and your words are like cannonballs landing! Pull yourself together, man! Attention, everybody! We are in the presence of a true wordsmith! No, we're not. Allow his words to be the wings on which your cards fly! No, no. I want what he's having! Okay, we need to go. We need to go right now. I've got an idea. We'll get those cards that are blank on the inside, and we'll write your words on them, and then we'll give them to our ladies. But we have to write in calligraphy. I'm just going to take your card. What was that part about the true uh, soulmates? I need a pen. I gotta write this down. That stuff is gold. That'll give me a whole Sunday of football. 
love that. <laughs> Just a little advice, you know. If you're if you're still in uh, you know the shopping mode for uh, for Valentine's Day, that your words mean more than a card. Um, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think the concept of love gets so watered down, doesn't it? I mean, if you ask people what their definition of love is, it could be a whole range of things. Um, it, it is something that seems to be everywhere. And I know that as soon as I start saying, this morning's message is about love, um, I, I see people's eyes start to glaze over. Okay, it's Valentine's Day. He's talking about love. It's the love message. It's the love message. Okay, we can start tuning them out here. It, and we go from sort of like zero to uninterested like that, right? Because in a sense, you, you know what I'm about to say. And that's some of the fear of actually giving this message is when I, when I say essentially, I can give you the whole message in a nutshell. And that's to, to be part of the kingdom of God and to follow Jesus means to love God and love others. I could sit down at this point and you will have had the message. That's the whole thing. And yet... It is the most easy thing in the world to say, right? It's the most difficult thing in the world to live. And, and so I realize that as we start to begin to talk about love, especially in the context of Valentine's Day, because that it, it even becomes more and more confusing when you add on, you know, Valentine's Day and the cards, and you know, I bought the, this card because I had no money. Um, the concept of love gets so watered down and confusing that we often don't know what it means. We don't know what it looks like. Uh, and so actually, what I want to try to do um, is to talk about love in a different way, because oftentimes we talk about love as if it exists, but if we look at the world around us, we say like the Black Eyed Peas in the beginning video, where's the love? I don't see it. We, we talk about living one way, but we live a different way often. Where's the love? So I want to kind of take a different route to coming up with a definition of love and what love looks like for our lives in a very tangible way. I want to define love in a specific way so that we can begin to get our minds around what it means to, to know love and to experience love and to extend love both to God and to other people. Um, so let me ask you this <clears throat> kind of to, to start out and be honest with me. Uh, raise your hands if this is true. Who here likes to be right? All right. Who here, who here never likes to be right? Guy would call you liars again, right? But oftentimes, see, I love being right. Um, I was having a discussion uh, with Mandy last night about, um, <laughs> about cookies. Uh, and uh, we... <laughs> We had these cookies that we had bought for one of the vision dinners, and then we, we, uh, we told you last week that the Monday vision dinner was canceled, so we had these cookies kind of left over. And uh, we had eaten them throughout the week, and uh, we, it got down to like the last two or three, right? And we were having a discussion about who had the last cookie. Um, and, and so what I said is, is uh, you know, she, she said that uh, the box wasn't there anymore. We, we don't have any more cookies. You ate the last cookie. I really wanted, they were really good ones too, like the white chocolate macadamia nut cookies. Um, and, and so that, you know, you ate the last cookie. And I said, well, technically, 
I gave you the last cookie because do you remember the other night when I brought in two cookies on napkins and I gave you one and I had one? Those were the last two whole cookies. <laughs> After that, there was a few sort of half pieces of cookies and I just sort of cleaned up the rest. Um, so technically I'm right. You know? <laughs> but it didn't matter if I was right, right? Because I was wrong. <laughs> That's a, that's a good thing that, that uh, you learn in marriage quickly. Um, but but, I, I, yeah, right. but I, I enjoy being right. And there, there's a particular area that I'm uh, sort of addicted to correction, that, that I'm addicted to being right. And that's actually in the area of sort of Bible and theology, which isn't a surprise, right, because I spent so much time sort of developing that area of my life. Um, but it used to drive me crazy uh, when people, I thought, were inaccurate with the Bible. Especially when you get into like the, the, the languages of the Bible because I had spent so much time sort of studying those original languages. So it would drive me nuts and I'd go, you know, it's not Jehovah, it's Yahweh. That's the, the correct pronunciation of the name of God. Right? It's, where did you even get that Greek pronunciation? It, it's not even close to the, the, the right one. Um, Jesus spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Uh, why do you say that he, he spoke Aramaic? And just um, this week, actually, one of my friends called me a, a theology snob uh, because he, uh, he asked me a very simple question. He, he was, he's teaching a, a Bible study uh, on Thessalonians, and he was asking for a commentary. And so I went into this whole diatribe about these different commentaries and, and who said what about this and who said what about that and who was correct and who was incorrect. And uh, so in the middle of that, he goes, you know, you're a, you're a theology snob. <laughs> so apparently this is something that I still uh, deal with. And um, what do you expect, right? Um, you know, after you spend four years in seminary, you have no life outside of that. So uh, that ends up becoming your life. So, so what is it that you like to be right about? What is it that, you, that really, you know, is your area of expertise? And when you see somebody being wrong in that area, it just bubbles up inside. It just annoys you to no end that, that somebody got the details wrong or, or is incorrect in a certain area. What's that area for you? I think we all have those kinds of areas. And I think in large part, it's because we live in a society that values being correct. We live as a part of a country that enjoys being on the right side of a discussion. Uh, and so this permeates <clears throat> everything that we do. It permeates every area of our life. And I can give you a couple examples of that. Uh, because when we know we're right, um, it doesn't matter who holds the other position. They're wrong and we're right. We know we're right. And we're right for being right. Um, so a couple areas of, poli uh, of, of life. The first is politics. Um, it doesn't take long to, to, to figure out who's wrong on issues, right? Uh, you know where you stand, and so everybody that doesn't stand on your issue is wrong. And so Obama's wrong on health care, right? Christie's wrong on education. Um, Palin's wrong on everything. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it just becomes part of the way that we dialogue, right? Uh, and, and we have these big discussions about who's right and who's wrong. Uh, but that goes into our personal lives as well, and so we end up... Uh, judging other people because she's wrong for letting her daughter have that tattoo. And, and he's wrong for letting his son stay out too late. 
Uh, I know what my values are, and when other people violate my values, they're wrong and I'm right. That's, that's kind of how we do it, right? That's, that's sort of the way it works. Um, we bring this mentality, though, into the church as well, and, and into the life of the church. And so we, we know for certain, we know that we know that we know that we're right on things like gay marriage and alcohol and abortion and privatized education and on and on and on and on and on. We know that we know that we're right. And in our rightness, uh, we cling to that and we baptize others in their wrongness. Um, we make snap judgments because we feel that our reasons for holding our point of view are more justified than the reasons that others have for, for holding theirs. And so even though you know, we, we don't do this out of spite necessarily, we, our motives may be very good. We, we may have the right motives behind the positions that we hold, um, and we know that we're right to be right. Um, there's only one problem with this. In the Bible, the people that hold on to that view of being right for the sake of being right, they get criticized by Jesus more than any other group. Um, in Jesus' day, there were people that did the same things. And in their effort to sort of do the right thing and to get people to live the right way, they constructed a system of rules and rituals that people would have to abide by uh, in order to make sure that they were kosher with God, in order to make sure that they were on the right track and that they kept the rules. And so they actually came up with a whole list of things. Um, and if you were to count them all, so we're going high-tech and low-tech this morning. So this is, this is the low-tech portion of, of, to, of this morning's program. If, if you were to count up all the rules that these people had constructed, these aren't just rules in the Bible. These are rules that were added to the Bible so that we know that we know that we're right to follow the Bible. So these are ways to help you figure out what it was to, to follow God, to love God, to love people. And in all, they created uh, 613 rules and regulations and rituals. Um, everything from um, Sabbath, you know, taking uh, rest, to what you could and couldn't eat, uh, to when and how you should wash yourselves, uh, to what you couldn't touch and what you could touch, uh, even down to arranging your spice rack and what, what things needed to go in there. They multiplied rules until we, they came up with 613 of these. Uh, and these teachers of the law, they, they would take it upon themselves to create this system in order to help people. Their intention was to help people. It was to be right in their own eyes, but it was to help people to love God and love people. Uh, and so Jesus actually encounters one of these teachers of the law in, uh, in Mark 12, and uh, it, it happens around a debate. Basically, Jesus is having a conversation with a couple other teachers of the law uh, about something else, and this other teacher comes in and asks him this pointed question. So in Mark 12, um, it says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, think 613, which is the most important? So in other words, of the 16, uh, 613 commandments that we've constructed to help people along in their spiritual journey, which do you think is most helpful, Jesus? And, and so what he's doing is he's asking Jesus, what denomination are you? What sect do you fall into? And do you agree with me 
that my interpretation of the 613 is more right than their interpretation. Because I have my own set of what bubbles up onto the top of this list, and other people have their own set. So which one do you think is more important? And Jesus sort of cuts through all this, right? His answer cuts to the core of what it means to, to love God and love people. And he says this, The most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. See, the religious leaders, they, they wanted to trap Jesus in a debate. They wanted to corner him into a sideline debate where they could prove how right they were. And they wanted Jesus to be on their side. Because they figured, if I can get Jesus on my side, now I've got some weight behind what I say. And I can attract other people to my cause. But Jesus exposed just how confusing their commands had become. And so what he does is he says, I don't think that any of these 613 are helpful. What you've done is you've confused people more. They're less clear on how to live their lives than they were before. And so what I'm doing is I'm boiling it down to two. Love the Lord your God and love others as yourself. He actually says elsewhere that the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In a sense, what he's saying is that two is greater than 613. Two is greater than 613. For all your law constructing, for all that you've done to build up these systems and rules to help people, you've hurt them in the process. And so what I'm doing is I'm setting them free from all those rules and regulations so that they can love God and love other people. Essentially what he's telling the teacher, right, is that for all his experience, for all his expertise in the Bible, for all of his lifetime as a good practicing religious person, uh, he has devoted his life uh, to a love of law. That's how he spent his life. He's developed a system where he loves laws. Jesus said, I'm coming in and I'm bringing one law of love. If you were to boil down everything, all the laws that you've constructed, it boils down to love. That's the contrast. You love laws, I bring a law of love, which sets people free to live a new kind of life. So, what's wrong with being right? What's wrong with being right every once in a while, right? Um, as I said before, Jesus actually reserves his most critical uh, criticism for people who did just that, who multiplied laws, who wanted to be right. Um, and so for Jesus, it wasn't just a matter of multiplication. So, oftentimes, we, we tend to construct laws that help us to live our lives better, right? We need certain guidelines by which to, to, to live our lives and live in society so that we don't hurt ourselves and other people. So Jesus is saying, you know, what's wrong with multiplying these laws? His beef, though, was that they impacted people in a negative way. And this is his criticism. Uh, Matthew 23, 
This is the most stern criticism of anyone Jesus ever gives. It's found in Matthew 23. And he's speaking of these very teachers that multiplied rules and laws to help people live. People who thought they were doing right by being right. People who thought that they were helping people by being right. And so this is what Jesus says. Uh, but do not do what they do, these teachers of the law, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, they talk a good game about loving God and loving other people, but when it actually comes down to it, when, it, when the, the rubber hits the road, they're nowhere to be found. They stand aside on the sideline and tell people to follow rules that they're not willing to, to follow themselves. Um, and, the, and what they end up doing is not helping people, but tying heavy loads to people which constrict them, which hold them down, which keep them from attaining God's dream for their life. They end up less fulfilled, less purposeful, less of everything than they would have been otherwise. Um, and look how strong Jesus condemns this attitude. It, it gets nowhere more pointed than right here. Um, in verses 27 and, and 28, he switches the language from talking about them and they to you. And so this is part of his woes or his curses to these people. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as, to, to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You talk about a contrast, right? You talk, you talk about a stinging condemnation. On the outside, you look pretty, but it's just a, a thin coat of paint. On the inside, you're rotting. And, and what you're doing is teaching other people to be hypocrites along with you. That's a strong condemnation. It doesn't get stronger than that. See, instead of letting people off the hook for being right, what Jesus does is he... He pushes them to baptize their rightness in love. He pushes people to go beyond being right to being loving. And he calls on them to, to lower the guard of their rightness so that they can extend love, so that they can complete those two commandments with God and with one another because the 613 stand in the way. This is what Jesus' uh, command was. And he's basically saying, you've done the 613 at the expense of the two. You've forgotten the core of what God is about in the world. Um, a good place to, to look for a, a, a very real example of this uh, in the Bible is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, this is a, a contrast, right, between the religious experts and somebody who didn't look the way people should look. Uh, if you know anything about Samaritans, they are sort of the half-breeds of the Jewish world. And so er, much earlier in the story uh, of Israel's history, uh, a, a nation called Assyria actually swooped down and took the northern part of the nation and carried them off into captivity. And then in their place, they brought people from their land down into Israel and said, go and settle in this land that we just took over. And what happened was those people that settled there 
ended up sort of half-worshipping Israel's God and half-worshipping the God of Assyria. And so they were a mixed breed. Some of the uh, Jews had gone and married with those people, but they're sort of living between these two worlds, one being sort of God's kingdom, right, on earth, the other being this foreign nation that doesn't know God, doesn't know anything. Um, and, and they're sort of living in the tension between those two things. And so as a, a good Bible-believing religious person, you would not pick a Samaritan to be the hero of your story. You, you wouldn't. Um, but, but this is what it says. Um, this is how the story starts. It says, but he, meaning a, a religious expert, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Um, so this is the answer to the question he gives, is, is telling this story. But look at the motivation of the religious expert. He wanted to justify his rightness, right? Because he wanted Jesus to give him an answer that, that met with, that, that justified his way of living already. So in other words, Jesus, tell me a story, give me an answer to my question, which makes the way that I live look right. Give me a story so that I look like the good guy. And what Jesus does is he gives a story that makes the outsider bad guy look like the good guy. If you know anything about the story, um, there was a man who had been beaten and left for dead as he's on the road to Jericho walking there. And um, if, if you're a good Bible-believing religious person, you don't touch dead or dying things. That's an unclean act to do. And so what happens is Jesus gives examples of three people that pass by this guy. The first two are religious experts. Uh, and each of them, as they find the guy, they end up leaving him there because he's unclean. Um, and so they were, in a sense, doing the right thing. They were following the 613 because you don't touch dead or dying things. That's an unclean act to do. And as a religious good person, you don't do that stuff. And so they were right, in a way. They were right to leave him on the side of the road, dead and dying, so that they could go on their merry way. But then the third person comes along, right? The Samaritan, the bad guy, the outsider, the half-breed, uh, the, the sort of religious outcast. He comes along, and what happens? It says that he had pity on him. Not only that, but he picks him up, brings him to an inn, gives him money, patches up his wounds, and, and, and does everything that he can uh, for this guy that's been left for dead by the other two. And then Jesus asked this question, which is great. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Who was more right in the story? The people who were right for following the 613 or the people who were right for following the two? Who's more right? He asked this back to the, to the religious expert and the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Be a neighbor to those people, even when it means violating your 613 rules. Um, so let's think of a couple examples to help us uh, bring this, this home to us. For the religious experts, they couldn't touch the guy because they had a rule about who they were supposed to, to touch and not touch. The guy was unclean. 
they were clean, that met with their 613 rules, and it meant that they couldn't extend love to them. Uh, so let's think of our own lives. God, I can't extend love to that person. They're an alcoholic. Um, and, and they live a, a life that's subpar to what I think that they should live, and therefore I can't do it. God, I can't <clears throat> love my neighbor um, because he screams at his kids. And who knows what he does behind closed doors? I can't love that person because their kids are a bad influence on mine. It just doesn't jive with my 613 rules. I can't extend love to this person because they've had an abortion. They've made a major life choice, and so they're going to have to live with that. I can't extend love to them. Um, what is your 613? What are the, the things that you've constructed in your life in order to be right so that it keeps you from obeying the law of love? Um, you know, I can't extend love to that person because they've been in prison. I can't extend that love to this person because they're in a different class than I am. Uh, they don't go to the same clubs. They, they, don't, they aren't part of the same activities that I'm a part of. Um, they don't look like me. Jesus would ask you the question, who's my neighbor? And are you willing to live the law of love at the expense of your 613 rules? That's the real question. Um, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't expect us to do anything he didn't do. Unlike the religious leaders of the day, unlike the experts who taught the Bible but lived in a different way, Jesus isn't willing for us to experience anything that he didn't experience. He isn't willing for us to make any choices that he wasn't already willing to make. Um, this isn't just something that he preached, right? This is a message that Jesus practiced and practiced to the full. And let me get you an, an example. Jesus hung on the cross for sins he never committed, right? Um, the Bible said he knew no sin and yet became sin for us. He was completely right in who he was. He was the son of God. He was exactly who he said he was, right? He came to earth to do exactly what he said he was here to do and did it. And so when he hung on the cross, looking down at the people who had crucified him, he was right in every way. He was justified in every way before God and before people. He had every right to say, I'm right, I condemn you. And yet, what, what does he say from the cross? He doesn't look down on the people that drove the nails into his own flesh and say, God condemns you because I'm right. What does he say? Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus was right in every way, and yet he baptized his rightness in love. He said, Father, forgive them. He was right on the cross, but here's the thing. He loved us more than he loved being right. He loved you and I more than he loved being right. If he wanted to continue being right, he would have never had to go to the cross. He would have never had to come down here to earth. He could have stayed in heaven and continued being right, continued being righteous before all creation and condemn all of us for our sin. And yet he doesn't do that, right? 
He steps down into time, into earth, and says, I'm going to be one of you, and not only one of you, but I'm going to be the least of you, and, and I'm going to put aside my rightness so that I can love you. He loved us more than he loved being right. So as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, there is a stark difference between being right and being a follower, right? Because if Jesus chose to be wrong in order to love others, I think what he's calling us to do is to be wrong also for the sake of loving others. So if reading our Bibles doesn't cause our hearts to love God more and to love others more, if we're using it as a measuring tool uh, to see how ourselves and others compare to God's law, then we're reading it the wrong way. If, if we, in our attempts to live a moral life, are motivated uh, by our own sort of self wanting to be right and others to be wrong, we're living life the wrong way. If we're attending church and our life group uh, in order to be part of a culture and a society uh, that is about being right more than it's about loving God and loving people, then we're here for the wrong reasons. Following Jesus doesn't mean being right. The aim of following Jesus, the aim of making him our savior, the, the aim of becoming more like him is to become people who love God and love others. We are to be a people who is known for one characteristic and one characteristic only. And that's love. How do we define that? That we're more willing to be loving than right. You're going to kill me. <laughs> but you want us to follow the two more than the 613. Mm -hmm. Because that's what Jesus would want. Mm -hmm. In my life, you know, the Bible says that man should not love man, woman should not love woman. All right? My son is gay. I love my son. The Bible says he's wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Thank you for that example. It's better than anything I came up with. <laughs> so let's think about that. Kenny's given us a good example. What it would look like for our lives to put aside being right to love others. What would it look like for this church to put aside being right in order to love people? What if that became the central mantra, the central activity of everything that we did here at Cultivate? Let's go back and, and sort of tweak our definition of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who loves, or, or, sorry, someone who follows Jesus by devoting his or her one life to God's kingdom dream for the world by choosing to love over being right. That's what it means to follow him. That's what it means for God's reign to come to earth. That's what it means for Jesus' prayer to be fulfilled. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what if the people of Warhees and Marlton and Barrington and Cherry Hill and all the other towns around this area asked the question, where's the love? And their answer was, cultivate church. What if that was the answer to their question? And they knew that this was a place that was marked by love, that extended that love to every person 
in our culture and in our society the same way that Christ did for us. We would be a people who are following Jesus, who are doing his will in the world, who are devoting our one lives to his kingdom dream for this world. And I think that as we do that, our capacity to dream, our, our ability to discover our one dream for our life becomes a reality because we've taken God at his word and we start to love other people and to love him um, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I hope it is for you too. We're actually going to um, open up sort of the symbols of God's love um, being communion. Um, they are the, the elements that we celebrate the love of God. Um, so we understand as we take them that they are representative. They are, are ways to remember God's sacrifice for us, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for our behalf. Those are the symbols of his love, and as we take it together, we remember, God, you loved me enough to be wrong. And so we want to love others enough to be wrong too. So let's, let's do that and let's pray before we do it. Father, we, we thank you for the challenge that you give us. Um, in some ways, it's the easiest word in the world to say. It's the hardest to live. It, it's a concept that we often get confused and abused for ourselves and for others. But you call us to love. You call us to love you with everything that's within us extend love to other people as we would love ourselves. It's such a simple concept and yet so difficult to do. But God, as, as we're talking about this, as we're trying to make it real for us and for our community, we want it not just to be words that we say, but a, a way of life that we choose to live each and every day. God, I, I pray that you would help each of us to baptize our rightness and love, to choose to be wrong and to identify ourselves with that dead and dying man on the side of the road, to put aside our 613 rules and to choose to follow you to obey too. May we be people that love deeply, not just for our sake to make ourselves look better, so that your kingdom would advance, so that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we trust you for the results of that love. It's not our choice, it's not our ability, God, to, to, uh, to create good things. That's, that's, that's your work in the world. We just, we just trust you for it. We follow you in it, and we pray that you'll do something beautiful through it, something that we could have never done ourselves.